Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and today I'm speaking with two good friends about Portuguese wine, Portuguese food, and some of the good old days. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back to the Chef Timoni Podcast. Thank you, as always, for joining me. And if you're new to the program, thanks for being here for Chef Timoni. Before we get to the interviews today, let's just take a little time to reflect on what's been going on in the world lately. Now, Chef Timoni is not a political podcast, and even though many of the show's guests are lawyers, it's not a legal podcast either. Chef Timoni is a podcast that's all about stories. It's a show about stories from the culinary world. And you might think, great, here's a break from all of the heavy news coming out these days. And there has been some particularly heavy news recently on issues of racial injustice and unequal treatment at the hands of police and at the hands of so many systems that we've built into our societies. So you might be ready for some distraction. And that's fine for what it is. And generally, Chef Timoni is just a show that shares what I hope are interesting interviews and stories about food, stories that you won't find anywhere else. But the plain fact is that food is political. Our access to it is political. Our creation and adaptation of it is political. The mingling of recipes and traditions and food cultures is political. The distribution of food is political. And so as happy as I am that you've joined me here today, and I certainly hope that you keep coming back to hear more episodes of the show, I also hope that you will join me in listening to other voices from the food world. And here are a few simple suggestions of the many, many, many voices that you and I and everybody could be spending more time with. I will put links in the show notes, of course. And these are voices of people who are different from me, whether that's because of race or gender or both. So first up, BFF with the chef. Nicole Schwegman, who lives in Hawaii, is the host of this great podcast. Like me in my current line of work, Nicole is not a professional chef, but she loves to interview chefs, loves to learn from them, and then to share what she has learned on her fantastic podcast. Have a listen. BFF with the chef with Nicole Schwegman. Sarah Dugnan of the Anthrodish podcast. Sarah is an anthropologist, and every week on her show, she looks at the connections between food culture, and identity through an anthropological lens. Sarah's show is full of fascinating guests and really insightful conversation. Anthrodish. Check out Jenny Dorsey's work. Jenny is a chef who writes intelligently, consistently, and persuasively on issues of race and media and food and art and much, much more. She also creates some incredibly beautiful and delicious looking food. So there you go. Those are just three voices I offer to you. I suggest you check out. All are very different from mine. They're different from chef Timoni, and that's really a good thing, isn't it? And with that, let's hope, well, let's do more than hope. Let's listen. Let's take action. But also hope that the movement happening now with Black Lives Matter really is a change, really is a point of no return to what had been taken as normal. And let's hope it's really a catalyst for moves toward racial justice. All right, today's stories now, today's interviews. Coming up soon on the show is going to be an interview with a former law colleague of mine, Mike Silva. And Mike and I had a really fun talk about food and family and 
of all things, Las Vegas. But first, before we get to the interview with Mike, you're going to hear from my good friend, Avelino Santos. Now, I know Avelino from Bishop's Restaurant, which is where I restarted my work in the culinary world in 2008. And if you know Chef Demoni, you'll know that's where I first started staging or volunteering in the kitchen and learning from Chef Andrea Carlson and her team. The owner of Bishop's is John Bishop. He's a bastion of hospitality. You're going to hear both about Andrea Carlson and about John Bishop in my interview with Avellino. John's restaurant, Bishop's Restaurant, is actually going to be closing later this year. It's a huge, huge change in the Vancouver culinary landscape. In any event, Bishop's Restaurant, that's where I met Avellino. He was working front of house. I was staging in the kitchen, learning from Andrea and her staff. Avellino has got 25 years in the culinary world. He started cooking, actually, in the Lisbon region in Portugal. Now, I know Avellino, as I said, as a front of house guy, but he does have some back of house, some kitchen experience as well. You'll hear today he's got some cruise ship industry experience in Vancouver. He's worked at Bishop's, as I say, at the Vancouver Club. And recently he started a really interesting business. It's called Premium Portugal Wines. And you're going to hear about that today. Avelino and his partner, they're importing wines from Portugal, as the name suggests. They're bringing them into British Columbia. You're going to hear about their process of of doing that. You'll hear about the connections that they are making with farmers and producers in Portugal. You're going to hear about a really interesting small region in Portugal that is growing grapes that are actually pre-phylloxera. And phylloxera was a disease in the 1950s that eradicated many, many, many vines in Europe. So a little history lesson. I certainly learned something new in my discussion with Avellino, and perhaps you will too. Avellino's got some great recommendations for wines. I'm going to put links to those in the show notes. And with that, that's enough for me, enough from this introduction. Let's go now to my discussion with Avellino Santos of Premium Portugal Wines. Okay, well, Avelino, thanks so much for joining me over the computer as we must continue to do these days. I'm on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, you're in Vancouver, I assume. Is that right? Correct. I'm, I am uh, I am in the West End, just uh, a few blocks away from English Bay. Beautiful. So we're both, we're both looking at the same ocean, I think. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Good. We met years ago. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think how many years ago. Quite a few without giving either of our ages away. And that was at Bishop's Restaurant, where I had started staging and, uh, and learning from Chef Andrea Carlson and, and all the other chefs and cooks in the kitchen. And that's where I got to know you. But I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your history in the hospitality industry. Where and when did it start? And, and what are some of the moves that you made, including Bishop's? It's been, it's been 25 years, actually, I've been in hospitality. I started, actually, when I was 15, my first uh, first little restaurant job was um, at, a, at a restaurant very close to my parents' place, and I actually drove my dad's motorcycle with no license because I, I could only get license at sixteen. So, um, <laughs> sort of through the back roads, I would drive. I would ride my, my dad's motorcycle to to go work the restaurant, sort of part time the weekends and things like that while in school. So uh, I got the taste for restaurant hospitality around that time. And and where were you, Evelina? Where where was this all happening? So in Portugal, this was in the Lisbon region. So uh, I'm thinking about uh, about 40 kilometers north of Lisbon. It's a small town, uh, very much a fishing village. And 
this particular restaurant is um, not so much, uh, not too close to the ocean, but it's a bit more inland, but it's a very small neighborhood. I would say probably a couple hundred people that live in that town as uh, many other towns around there. So um, yeah, it's it's within the Lisbon region. And and you must have had some, I'm guessing you had some, (laughs) you must have had some amazing seafood that you guys were working with. Oh, sure, sure, sure. It's, um, that that, that is the beauty of the area there uh, where I'm from. Um, That whole coast, you know, Portugal is an amazing coast. Uh, actually, I think Portugal has some of the best seafood in the world in terms of um, the size of the the maritime area that belongs to Portugal. You know, and the diversity of uh, of seafood that we have. You know, from tiger prawns to lobster to I mean, so so many, so much stuff. And seafood has always been a part of has always been probably seventy five percent of our diet at home was the time or seafood. My dad actually was a fisherman for about thirty years. Um, so yeah, all is fresh seafood at home. Right. Yeah. No, it sounds like a dream. I, I know you as a front of house guy, but throughout your, your hospitality experience, uh, did you ever work back of house? Were you ever on the line either as a, either as a young, uh, you know, at 15 or any time after? Yes. Um, I was for a little bit, uh, when I, I started 15, so I would say about 17 a couple of years later i joined another restaurant was a little bit bigger and they were also doing weddings and big events so i started to get a taste for for cooking as well and for um for all the buffets preparations so i moved into that department uh, and i was there for three years maybe and um i was basically one of the it was like three, four of us in general on on the weekend to prepare all the buffets for weddings. As you may know, uh, weddings in Portugal are, uh, in terms of food wise, it's you know you have a massive seafood table, a massive cheese table, cold cut. You know, it's 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 massive. So anything from preparing suckling pigs to you know fruit towers to you know all sorts of cold cuts. So that was that was a lot of fun. So that was uh, I sort of moved into doing that um, instead of serving, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it would be. I've never cooked suckling pig. I'd love to know how to do that. Yeah, <laughs> that was fantastic. I bet. And and then maybe take us through the transition uh, from you know coastal village to uh, coming to Canada. Of course, how you got into the hospitality business here? Because I know you wound up at some very high-end fine dining positions. So you've seen a lot of the spectrum of the hospitality industry. Yes. So that was about, uh, so 17, 18, that's when I joined that second restaurant. And then I had to go to the army. Uh, It was mandatory at the time. So uh, even through the army, after the first month of uh, sort of intensive training, you choose. You have to choose a bit of a sort of a category uh, within the army uh, of a specialty. So I chose food and beverage as well. So um, I was sort of um, in charge of the officers' um, dining room for a while and um, did a few different functions within food and beverage. So continued to to like that aspect. Finishing the army, um, I worked uh, briefly at a, a company. And uh, while I worked for that company, which has nothing to do with uh, with food and beverage, was just uh, I took uh, accounting and um, in high school, and I did um, after the army. I worked um, a bit of sort of bookkeeping and a bit of office work for this paint company. It wasn't for me really office work. I was kind of just you know a bit of office, and I would do the random delivery, a few things. So, and uh, while I was there for just about a year. 
I met a fellow that um, came to the shop. He had this belt on, which it's the, it was the belt that we used to use in the military. And I asked him, I said, and, and uh, by the way, in the military, I was in the Navy. Um, so that belt has a, an anchor designed on it. So I saw the same belt on him and I, and I asked, uh, where'd you get that belt? And he said, I was in the Navy. And I'm like, oh, I was in the Navy as well. And I said, like, what do you do now? I said, I'm, I work for a cruise line. And, uh, and I said, wow, that, that is fantastic. How does that work? And he said, well, I actually have to go to Lisbon to get some paperwork done. If you want to come with me, I'll take you and you can, you know, check it out and see what's about. I, I said, yes, let's, let's, uh, I go with you. Why not? So I went with him and I found it so interesting, the cruise industry that I came back and I gave notice to my job within two weeks, I was going uh, joining a cruise ship in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Holy moly, that is fantastic. So, yeah. so you're, you're gone from Portugal to Argentina and you start, tell me about that. I've worked on a very, very tiny cruise ship that does these bespoke tours through coastal British Columbia. And I loved it. Very tiny galley kitchen uh, that I was mm. cooking in, but I'm imagining you were on much bigger ships. Yes, I, I started by working, the first contract was on a smaller boat, about 600 people. And then I joined another company, an American company, uh, Princess. And after that, uh, you know, the, the boats really, they just cruise. <laughs> it was just like so much bigger to the point that I worked at. Uh, at the time, the Golden Princess was the largest boat that I worked on, was about 3,000 passengers. Wow. Uh, so I did, I did five years of cruise line. After that random going to Lisbon <laughs> uh, trip, <laughs> that was a, a meaningful trip in your life. <laughs> I know it was fantastic. Um, yeah, so five years, uh, I did about eight contracts. Um, all most of the different ships. I did two contracts on the same boat, which was the Coral Princess. That was a repeated one, but otherwise, we're all different in different parts of the world, from Iceland to you know, Norway's uh, Cape Horn. Um, you know, Russia to, I don't know, North of Europe, Caribbean, you name it. Um, so that was, uh, that was a super cool experience. It sounds like it. What, what specifically were you doing on the ship, Sevelino? Like, what was your role or roles? Mm -hmm. So the fellow that I met, he sort of briefly told me, you know, like, I think it's best if you do a contract with this small company first and get your feet wet and then get, because on this company, you can join right away as a, a senior waiter. And then when, because when you're joining an American company, you, it takes longer for you to, to sort of, uh, how do you say it? it takes longer work, to, your, work your way up. To work your way up. Yeah, correctly. So I did that uh, first small cruise and then I decided to apply then for Princess. So basically I, I kind of worked my way up as well. I started not as a senior waiter. I started as a system waiter. And then from assistant waiter, you become a um, uh, senior waiter and then, uh, you know, food and beverage manager. And then I worked up my way to, to assistant metro D. And yeah, the last two contracts were pretty much assistant metro D, which I didn't have to wait tables. I just have to deal with uh, reservations and, you know, customer service aspect and things like that. So no waiting tables. So which, which was, uh, I had to sort of work my way up, but I have to say that Back in the days, uh, Italian and Portuguese were the, I would say, probably 80, 90% 80, of the management were Portuguese and Italian. 
So the flexibility of moving up was easier right. for a Portuguese person. So yeah. interesting. So what, could you describe like a typical dinner if there was such a thing or maybe, maybe one of the, uh, you know, like a seated service? How many people would be on the biggest ships? Like I, I just, um, it sounds to me like, a, you know, one of the big Vegas restaurants that I've been to, it would just be uh, almost a military operation to to put up that much food and to do it well. It's a it's pretty insane. It's a very high paced service. Uh, doesn't seem like from the customer aspect when you know everybody's seated and it's but it's 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 a major operation that goes in the back. Uh, I have to say that when I was assistant server, I would say I had a lot more fun than when I was a, a senior waiter. The, 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 the waiters never go to the kitchen. They stay in the dining room. They control the floor of the service. They make sure the, the customers are happy. The assistant servers are the ones running to the kitchen to the point that I used to carry sometimes like 12 men courses in one tray with the cloche on. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that is a whole underground. That is a, this whole thing of when a, when, a, when a waiter joins that particular contract, the top priority is to find a good assistant waiter. Because that's what makes the service is a good assistant waiter. Because the waiter needs to be in the station and needs to rely on the skills of the assistant waiter to be able to navigate to the kitchen. Because there's like escalators within the kitchen, right? There's two floors. There's many different sections. I mean, there's a lineup of like sometimes 30 waiters to to wait for, for the soup station to open. Right. So... <laughs> It's it's a whole different world, and it's and you have to be on your feet, right? And you have to be really. But I mean, it takes time. After a few contracts, you get all the nickels, and then you have to really you have to be smart and strategic in order to because the faster you get your first appetizer in, the faster you go to the soup course, the faster you go to main course, and so on. And the faster you do all of this, the more time you have in break in between each service, so you can flip it, and you have time to even go down to the crew bar if you actually if you're so good at what you do right so it's uh it's insane so i mean yeah it's the the the, the galleys it's amazing i mean it has trays and trays and uh, and um what do you call those cards that are the um, oh the uh the rack and roll the rack and rolls there's, there's like a zillion of them packed with appetizers already pre-made and like you know desserts and you know so many chefs like uh, you know it's 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 a it's a pretty impressive uh, operation, you know. And plus, dealing with the boat sometimes rocking, you know, things, you know, <laughs> thing, you know. Also, the assistant waiter has to be smart and has to come early to service because often that is assistant waiters like go to other people's stations and steal cutlery and steal things, <laughs> and uh, so to the point that sometimes people have to take cutlery to the room because people steal when you knew people steal from you, and it's like it's. It's. I mean, I could talk about yeah, this for hours. I was going to say um, it's. It's always fascinating to me how operations really work. You know, there's the there's a what the customer sees, and then there's b what the systems are that the restaurant or the ship or whatever it is has put in place. But then c is where the rubber hits the road and how people actually operate. Right. <laughs> and, you, right. and you have to be prepared to deal with all of those. For sure. And 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 never mind uh, going through the Falkland Islands with sixty foot waves and doing all this. <laughs> just thrown in for good measure. Oh, it's uh, pretty impressive. Um, yeah. Well, well, take us to take us to your uh, your Canadian ports of call, and I know of the two that I mentioned earlier in Vancouver, Bishops and the Vancouver Club. Those must have seemed very um, you know small and very stable in comparison. Yeah. 
while while at the, while uh, working on the cruise ships, uh, I met uh, someone from here, a girl from here, while working there, and she was also working there. So you know, five years sort of came by, and uh, we both were kind of like, you know, it's I think it's enough of cruise ships. It you know you start to get a you start to sort of stay, uh, get away from you know from friends, distance yourself from a lot of things, right? So because it's six months on, one month off, and you really need that. Uh, so you know, it was enough of cruise ships. So while I was on vacation, I came to Vancouver and um, I've sort of looked around and because uh, I was planning to move here. So I looked around and I checked, uh, you know, if there was anything, anyone Portuguese or, or uh, so I went to the consulate and I asked if there was any Portuguese restaurant or anyone that was sort of, uh, so they suggested that was a fellow that used to work at Bishop's that is Portuguese and he's the manager there, Bell. So um, I went there and spoke with him and, uh, you know, and we had a good conversation and, um, you know, obviously here in Canada, it's uh, much different than, you know, like Portugal, let's say, you know, you can't Portugal, like people work, you know, under the table all the time and things like that. But Abel was like, you know, here in Canada, how it works is, you know, once you have your work permit and everything, then call me and, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what we can do. So yeah, the time went by and, uh, I, I did just that. I, once I was allowed to work, I contacted the bell and very, very sh- short term, I, I got a job within a few months and was basically 10 years working at Bishops. And, um, yeah, it was, it was great. It was really good to work with, uh, with a restaurant like that. Learn, learned a lot. Like it was, I think Bishops really, that was the time where, where I really, you know, I, I would sort of. Like, uh, how would I say? I would like look at a menu and just every word I would like Google it and just <laughs> see what it is and what, what it's, you know, word after word, you know, and, 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 and things that would come up. I would just wanted to know what, what is what, you know, so many names that I never heard of. So many, so many, so much produce that it's, it's different and it's unique. And I was like, wow, you know, every name was like so much, so exciting. So yeah, I learned a lot of bishops it was, was great. I know that you worked with Andrea, of course, Andrea Carlson, who's now at Burdock and Co. Which other executive chefs did you work with? So, bef- so when I when I got there, it was Dennis Green was the chef, the first chef that I yeah. started working with, and then after Dennis Green, uh, Michael Schmidt and Ron Shaw. Yeah, of course, Ron. Andrew Carlson. I mean, a few other chefs that were sort of more in the short term. I'm trying to think of the names now. Jeez. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, that's wild. Yeah. So, yeah. You no, know, you covered a few. And of course, you would learn, I'm guessing, like, you know, the the reputation of the restaurant is uh, is all about hospitality. And, and a lot of that flows, of course, directly from John himself. He's, it seems, it seemed to me, from the back of house that he was something of a master of the, at the front of house of making guests, like every guest there, uh, I really think was made to feel very special still is until the restaurant closes later this year. John is, uh, he is a perfectionist in terms of, you know, customer service, right? He's, he wants to, you know, like at first, you know, you may come across that as like, you know, sometimes why like too many things, but you know, after working with him for a while, you realize that, you know, every little bit, it's important, you know. He wants to know at what stage is they're dining at, you know, which course are they on, and you know, which wine, and why is the wine empty, you know, and things like that. And it's it's all really, it's all really part of the success of bishops, really. You know, every detail, and not just the John, but the Bell too. Like you know, everyone sure. is on, a, on the same page where you know, like it's it's impressive. And John has really 
has really pioneered that in, and I've never seen anyone else doing what he does in the front of the house as well. Right. Yeah. I had some good friends come by, uh, for dinner one night and they were, um, they were amazed. John, John stepped out of the restaurant, uh, sort of midway through their meal just to make sure that their, uh, parking meter wasn't going to run out. And I think he actually plugged it. I think he put a couple of quarters into the parking meter yeah. for them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He did that quite a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Driving people home. Yeah, so many things that you're like, oh, wow, it makes sense. Like, wow, it's, yeah. Yeah, that's, just um, actually actually taking care of people. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, and to the point that, uh, I mean, I, at some point when when I was sort of um, having the systematic position uh, on, on the weekends and Sundays with the bell and Mondays, and, uh, you know, people would call and just, I would say probably... 30% of the people that call say, is John in tonight? Is John going to be in? <laughs> right. Or- yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to see that there are so many people who have come through that restaurant, like yourself, like Ron, Andrea, so many others, uh, you know, who are still really active in the food scene. It's nice to see that approach being passed on and, and spreading out around the city and, and further afield. Yeah. And it was really nice to see someone like you, you know, like uh, come in and uh, I've never, uh, it was the first time I think, and probably only time that I've seen that, you know, someone with such a dedication and really passion for, I was like, wow, it's uh that's uh you know, for a lawyer that to be like, you know, here every week, you know, it's like religiously and really like uh, super engaging. It's, it's really, really cool. You kept, yeah. uh, you, know, you kept your engagement, but distance at the same time and very, you know, very slick. Like you did your thing. It was pretty cool. It's pretty, yeah, it, well, it, didn't right. yeah. it was awesome. Yeah. I felt like I had a home there for a while, for sure. Mm-hmm. It was so, yeah, so welcoming and so fun to work with everybody. Yeah. Front of house, back of house. Uh, yeah. And learned an absolute ton. How was, how was uh, the Vancouver club? I've had a few wonderful meals there. I've got friends who are members. Yeah. So for, for the, uh, I, I basically uh, what I did was uh, within the ten years of bishops, I sort of became part time at bishops and full time at the Vancouver Club. Okay. I didn't really wanted to give up bishops' job, so I really enjoyed it there. But I wanted to sort of try something different. You know, it was six years in, I wanted to sort of experience a little something different. I thought the club opportunity came along, and uh, and it was great. I really, you know, the the membership is fantastic there. Um, it's really uh, different. So. As opposite to bishops, it's a much larger operation. And for me, uh, you know, going from a 45-seat restaurant to, you know, 150 or, you know, sometimes more, depending on what size you have there. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it was great and doing all sorts of different uh, from training to maitre d' to wine, you know, to sommelier to to barista to you know helping everybody and like it's uh it's yeah it was, it was really really fun yeah, yeah a lot of fun. look I've done, i did a few volunteer events like when i was staging with the uh with the bishops team we wound up at uh i forget what the event was for but we did uh, did some cooking there with a bunch of restaurants and it was really fun the kitchen is seriously impressive i remember mm-hmm. thinking wow that was yeah. I, I guess shortly after their big renovation it was a real treat to be able to cook there oh yeah the new yeah the renovation was that i mean fun i mean heated pass heated in like all kinds of like just technology alone and like tv yeah it's pretty up there yeah it's yeah uh, close to two million dollar kitchen so it's pretty <laughs> wow pretty so, yes. so it should be nice yeah. well li- well listen let's step out of restaurants and clubs but keep the connection to wine because you are now very much involved in a business that is bringing in wines from your home country bringing in wines from portugal so tell us about 
premium Portugal wines. But maybe first tell us about, because when I think of, and, and I, I make no representations to being uh, knowledgeable about wine at all, I, I always say I'm happy to outsource my wine knowledge to friends like you who know it. So I can just send a text and get a great recommendation. But when I think about Portuguese wines with my very limited knowledge, uh, Vino Verde comes to mind. Uh, the Douro region comes to mind. There's a grape, Alvarinho, is that right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's about the end of the knowledge that I have on Portuguese wines. So well, I'm sure there are a lot of people like me who don't know much. So what are we missing about Portuguese wines and and what are you and your business bringing into Canada now? Yeah, so that is actually very, uh, that is actually, I would say that what people mostly know here in BC on terms of wine is exactly those three points. is Vino Verde, Douro, and Alvarinho. Yeah. Very, very common. I would say 80 plus percent of people, that's usually what they say. Being here for, for about 14 years now, you know, after sort of 10 years of Bishops, 10 years of Vancouver Club, there was a time where, and I've always thought of this, I've always thought, you know, like, why don't we have like so many other Portuguese wines that are available, so many other regions and so many other styles and so many other grape varietals that are amazing. And, um, and that was all, that's always been because I've always consumed Portuguese wine and, uh, you know, I've always seen the same labels for years and years. Um, so when my sort of 10 years came up at the Vancouver Club, um, there was an opportunity that showed up that I came across. And, uh, you know, someone that I'm working with on this project thought that could be a good idea, thought that the market needed more Portuguese wines. And I said, yeah, I mean, I agree with that 100%. At that point, he mentioned that, uh, you know, that there was definitely a growing sort of likability for, let's say, for Portuguese wines and interest, right? So we decided, you know, I think, yeah, I think we could probably do, you know, do something with this. So we decided to go ahead and, uh, you know, start a, an, an agency. It's a pretty complex uh, process here in BC. Uh, I'm sure you know in terms of all the regulations and all that. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Just just getting it into the getting it into the country, getting it into the province and then distributing. And, oh, yeah. And yeah, as I understand it, everything has to go through the provincial distributor. This is one of the most, the, one of the hardest provinces uh, to deal with wine in the world, almost like this is crazy here. But uh, despite all that, we, we thought there's definitely need. And we, you know, we, I did three trips myself in 2018. Uh, my partner went uh, twice there. We drove about 3000 kilometers in 10 days um yeah wow. well i drove <laughs> i drove but uh so yeah 10 days we visited at uh close to 30 wineries drove up and down the country and we we basically sourced about uh 14 producers uh we sourced about uh, yeah 11 12 uh, and a few more uh in october so basically on that year, we sourced uh, pretty much our first batch of the portfolio, which was uh, about 40 labels. So that was June that we started our first trip. Uh, October, we did a second trip just to visit a few other producers that we thought was important to do. Uh, sourced a couple more producers. And then in December, we placed the first order, a full container of wine. And that arrived in January 19. That was, uh, I don't think no one's ever done that. 40 labels in one time of Portuguese wine in this market ever. Um, <laughs> and and a, con- a full container. So how many yeah. cases would that be? That's a lot of wine. Over 2,000. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 
yeah, so we just we just went for it. And uh, wine arrived in January. We did our first tasting in February last year, January February 19. And um, yeah, we have uh, now the largest collection of Portuguese wines in BC. Yeah, we have another five, six labels coming in probably within the next couple of months. Yeah, a couple are sold out, moving through a few and yeah. And give us a sense, Evelino, of the um, uh, slice of the market that you're going for. Because I understand these, your wines are, they're not, you know, some of the really inexpensive wines that have been available here for a while, but they're also not hugely expensive. It seems to me that you're you're hitting like a, a really specific quality point with your wines. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, so what we thought was, you know, there's definitely a lot of wines, like you're saying, on more on an expensive side, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, un- under 10 or up to $18, that's quite a few. So we decided to go premium. So for us, price point, uh, we thought, you know, that there's a, definitely a gap. There was a few wines in the market that were $80, a couple of Doros from about $80, uh, not much. It was only, I think, three or four SKUs that were around that price point and everything else was almost 20, uh, below 20. So we went for that sort of mid market there, 30, $40, 20, uh, mid, mid to high twenties to 30 and 40. So that's what we did, you know, and, uh, it's, it's all, you know, we sourced only producers that, you know, have their own grapes. Uh, nobody buys grapes, uh, you know, wineries that focus on, uh, sustainability, um, permaculture, um, to be, uh, like for sparkling wine, you know, we want someone that, that does traditional methods, things like that. So that is sort of the, 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 the market uh, segment that we, that we went for. Right. Okay. And give us a sense of what the, um, like maybe pick a region or two that are some of your favorites and where you're now offering in British Columbia wines that weren't around here before. In other words, what can people experience here now that, you know, two years ago they couldn't? Yeah, so, um, for example, in, in Vino Verde, most uh, consumer is used to uh, Vino Verde being um, very, very light, uh, fizzy, and, you know, often quite fruity, you know, lots of fruit, uh, very tropical, and that's sort of the Vino Verde style that's been around for a long time. So we brought in uh, four uh, Vino Verdes, and all of them have no fizz. One of them, for example, is made with two other varietals other than Alvarinho. It's uh, Arintu and Azal, uh, which is um, it's grown a little bit on the southern part of Vino Verde, closer to Douro in the Amaranto region. So wines that are, uh, they yes, they're Vino Verde, but they are, you know, they, they, they're on a style, so no fizz. They have ageability potential. Some of these uh, Vino Verdes, they can age, you know, five, six, seven, eight years uh, as opposed to, you know, majority of the Vino Verdes on the style that we spoke before. I mean, it's, you know, one year, two, and that's done. And, um, you know, just really, really small producers. Uh, one of them, for example, Marciu, uh does something very unique. He, the, the Alvarinho that he makes, it comes, well, not just the Alvarinho in particular, but his wines and also the Alvarinho come from, he uses grapes from about 30 different micro-producers. So he does not own the vineyards. He basically just supports uh, about 30 small producers to produce his wines. And, you know, they're all really, it's, it's amazing wines. 
And and you're actually getting to you know you have seen these producers and you're planning more trips back. So I'm I'm guessing that you're developing relationships with the with the farmers. Absolutely, every single producer we visited their farm. If we don't visit their farm, we haven't imported anything. Yeah, so that's great. That is that is our philosophy. Part of our philosophy is we have to see what where the grapes are. We have to feel what the energy is coming out of that particular producer. You know, we have to really understand uh, what their vision is, uh, and many. I mean, it's 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 really it's it's, it's definitely the, the quality of the wine has to be good, but there's much more other than the wine that needs to fit right. So yeah, it's very exciting for us, and we definitely have more trips coming up. Uh, we actually did a trip to a particular region that we are bringing in next month, which actually does a, was an article um, recently came out about that region. One of the world's most rarest wines. Uh, it's a region grown in uh, the, the grapes grow on sandy soils. It's called Kuladish. It's a small micro region within the Lisbon region. There is only ten acres of DOC wine. Um, mm-hmm. For the audience, uh, and first off, the you know DOC is a denomination of origin controlled. Uh, so quality wines that are certified by the local wine institution only so, grown. So the- so to put that into food terms, that would be like a like a registered area, like um, Parmigiano, uh, Reggiano, correct? Right? Like, yeah, yeah. You could make yeah. the cheese elsewhere, but it's not legitimately Parmesan if it doesn't correct. come from the right region. Yeah, it's like a VQA wines here in BC. Right. Okay. Got it. Good. And so, what is the style of wine coming out of this uh, sandy soil? Is it red? Is it a there's a f- few things that can go around that we can uh, talk about it for, for a long time. But in general, if it's a white wine, it has to be made from a grape called Malvasia. And if it's a red wine, it has to be made from a, a grape called Hamishku. So this, this region is that it's a pre-phylloxera region. So a phylloxera was um, a disease that happened in the 50s that okay. really eradicated all European vines. Wow. To the exception of a few small little parts of a few different countries that wasn't affected. This was one of them. The reason why it didn't affect was because the vines are planted in sandy soil. What they do is they dig a two meter deep hole. They plant the vine on the bottom of that hole on regular soil. And then they cover cover for a long time. They continue covering until it reaches about two meters high until it reaches the, the, the level ground. So the, the bunches of the vines, they're actually almost touching the floor. Okay. So the fungus was not able to attack the roots because it was so deep. Interesting. So this is, this is a, uh, I don't even know what to call it. I, I guess it would be a, a, a heritage strain. It would yeah. be like some kind yeah, of a, like a heritage hard wheat or something in the, uh, in the food world. <laughs> yeah, so exactly, exactly. Um, so being pre-phylloxera, they actually uh, just applying, I, th- I think it was not approved yet, but it, it, they applying to become World Heritage Site. Wow, um, that is so, so and it's, it's 10 acres oh, in all of Portugal. Well, no, 10 acres, 10 acres is the, the, the amount of grapes to produce DOC wine. To produce a DOC wine, the grapes have to grow in sandy soils. Now, there are the same grapes growing on non-sandy soils. Then it becomes about 30 acres total. Okay. So, but you cannot call it, you cannot call on the label Kuladish if it's not grown in sandy soils. Got it. Okay. But, but even at 30 acres, it's still a yeah. very, oh, yeah. very tiny piece of land. Very, yeah. So the wines, for example, you find white wines from the 70s that are still like, they still have acidity. Wow. 
<laughs> it's 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 phenomenal stuff. And uh, yeah, we just uh, yeah we just signed up with my producer last uh, October. So there's uh, we bring in a Malvasia non sandy soils. We bring in a Malvasia and a Remisco DOC, one of each, and we bring in a late harvest late harvest from Malvasia from the same region as well. It's amazing stuff, but um, a little pricey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. But but worth it for a special occasion. I'm going to guess. Oh, for sure, for sure. It's these wines are phenomenal. You, you can even comp- you even blindly you never say this is Portuguese, as well as many other wines that we carry. I mean, if you taste them blindly, a lot of people can say it's Portuguese. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it's, uh, I mean, so much to... <laughs> so much to explore, yeah. Well, maybe yeah. give us a couple of... Um, can you give us one or two from your portfolio that would be good for the upcoming summer season? You know, maybe pick one that's a, a more a value-oriented wine and then pick one that's a blockbuster if I decide I want to part with a few more dollars. So I would say the a sparkling wine, there is a, a, a particular grape that is grown in Portugal called Baga. So... In Portugal, you don't find, you know, the traditional, you know, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Monnier type of thing, type of blend. So Baga is a very unique varietal. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, and I think it would be nice for consumers to really experience it against uh, other sparkling wines that are there. Because Portugal makes really, really cool stuff for sparkling wine. In fact, there's been some that has been, they've been sort of blindly, like, you know, up to par with some of the best champagnes in the world. So, um but it has to be blindly so people don't have... <laughs> right, right. Don't go in with ideas. Don't go with ideas. But uh, so try that. It's, uh, I mean, it, um, so yeah, sparkling, that sparkling from with the, with the grape varietal Baga is a, it's a really good treat and it doesn't really break the bank right now. I mean, it's like twenty six ninety nine, dollars It's pretty affordable. Yep. Yeah, I mean, there is a Vino Verde producer, a female called Juana Santiago. She, we have an Alvarinho from her here. Uh, it's a little bit more than the average Alvarinho here. It's $37.99 retail, but it's, uh, it's a reserver. It's her reserver and has been uh, exposed to six months of used French oak. So it's mm. something very unique as well, very different. I don't think the market has seen an Alvarinho with oak in the past. So something really cool to experience as well. Only 5,000 bottles produced. Wow. And we can finally get it in, get these smaller producers in BC. That's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Pretty much all of our producers, uh, that is only one or two out of 15 that produce more than 5,000 bottles per label. Wow. Um, yeah. We actually have, we have one label from Alentejo. Alentejo is uh, the southern part of Portugal, the really hot, hot part of Portugal. We have a wine here that is uh, a blend of four varietals, uh, including Alvarinho, and uh, it only makes 1,000 bottles uh, a year. So it's very, very cool as well. Wow. Um, yeah, I think that uh, Quinta Santiago from uh, Ju- uh, Juana, female producer, is really cool. Uh, the sparkling with 100% Baga, um, very cool as well, very unique. And uh, I mean, so many, so many. <laughs> yeah, there's so many, I know, so many. What about uh, restaurants, Avelino? Are, are you distributing two restaurants? Yes, yes, we are, yeah. yeah. So Nightingale has been... Uh, it's been a good support of us. Uh, I mean, Wildebeest, Elisa, Steakhouse, uh, Bishops had a few, uh, Mod 32 at Trump Tower, Stable House. Yeah, the Red Accordion, really cool spot on, in, on Alberni Street. They have a couple labels. They okay. have actually, um, by the glass, they have um, that Vino Verde, the Vino Verde that is not Alvarinho. Yes. That is made from Marinto and Azal. 
super nice. Like no fees. It's 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 such a it's such an amazing wine. They have that by the yeah. glass. They have that by the glass. Okay, so that might be a good tip for people who uh, just want to dip their toe in it. They could uh, go and have an appy and, and a glass of this vino verde. For sure. Yeah. No. They they, they actually uh, Ivana, one of the owners. She's she really loves vino verde. That's her favorite region. So uh, she's very excited to have it there. <laughs> Terrific. Okay. What about um? What food pairings would you put with these, Avelino? For for so for the Saint Igual, Rinto and Azal. So it's it's a vino verde, but because it's not so not a very light and fizzy, uh, I would say, you know, can even sustain to you know even like poultry if it's not heavy sauces. Even like chicken made in a particular like you know in a more of a light way, I think. Mm-hmm. It could go. You know, something with a bit more, like a salad with a little bit more, uh, with a sort of a heavier dressing. Nothing too light because uh, it is it is a, it is a complex wine for the for the sparkling. Um, so once again, it's a it's a sparkling wine. But uh, when people the people that are used to let's say you know Cabernet Prosecco, yeah. the Baga has has a bit more. It's a bit more to it, so it's how do I say? Like it's a bit more savory. It's a bit more you know nutty. It's a bit more complex, right? So I would say it can also stand up to not just you know like when people say you know oysters and just a bit more than that, right? It needs more food, okay? Uh, a bit more heavier, heartier food. Let's say you're doing like a smoked salmon crostini or something like that. You know, a bit more a bit of a smoke to it, type of thing. Sure. Uh, but yeah, you know, something not so light, something not too light. Um, for, mm-hmm. for, for, for Joanna, it was another Alvarino. Once again, it's a reserver, so it, it really, it really deserves a heartier soup, you know, like something like that. Having a bit of the oak exposure also gives it a bit more nuttiness, a bit more, you know, more structure. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's always a, it's always a challenging. I mean, I know everybody's so different in terms of how they pair things. Um, of course, yeah. these wines can can definitely sustain up to you know more more spices and more more flavor. It's not just like uh, sitting by the pool and you know and, 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 and knock it back. Yeah, I think yeah. there's they deserve a bit more. Just yeah, they de- sounds like they deserve a bit more care and attention and thought, which I yeah. think is. Yeah, it's part of the part of the joy of experimenting and, and learning with new wines, right? You get to uh, not only enjoy them on their own, but then start thinking about, oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to make something. I'm going to make a heavier soup. Maybe I'm going to put some seafood into this. I'm going to give it a tiny bit of spice and see how it all works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I had um, I was I did a, um, a live with the producer of the sparkling wine. I did a live with him on I think Wednesday last week or Thursday, and yeah. uh, and then I ended up making the next day prawns prawns at nighttime and i did you know i had some smoked paprika and things like that and the prawns and garlic i had some of that sparkling left and i was like it's perfect like you can definitely you know you need that you need a bit of that right so the garlic the smoked paprika you know can definitely you can definitely stand up to it that's great and with uh spot prawn season hopefully happening <laughs> some yes. soon we'll be well set for it i know right I miss the days at Bishops of, of the all jumping around and you just pull the tail out and just eat it raw. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, man, Sashimi. Beautiful. Well, listen, Avelina, where, where is the, and, and I'll put links to the, the wines that you've recommended and, but, but where can my listeners go for more information and, and to find out more about your portfolio and, and where to get your wines? I'm, uh, we are very active on most social media platforms. 
so Instagram, uh, Premium Portugal Wines, uh, Twitter, Premium PT Wines, uh, Facebook, we are present, uh, LinkedIn. Our website right now, uh, premiumportugalwines.com, is under, we're doing some restructuring on it. So it's gonna, not going to be live for a bit. But definitely social media, I'm always, uh, I'm always available, you know, DMs or, uh, or, or via email. Uh, it's uh, avalino at premiumportugalwines.com. You're welcome to email me anytime. I do, I do engage with a lot of consumers and a lot of people through, through social media quite a bit. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, that's a great um, way to get in touch. But email avalino at premiumportugalwines.com. It's always a... I'm always an email away. You know, it all depends really what people are looking for and particular style of wine, you know, and it's because we have a lot of different styles. So I'm always happy to, um, I've helped quite a few people actually within the last few weeks that were looking for wine and just kind of guide them, you know, if they want, if they want we have a rosé as well here and not every uh, retailer has the rosé. So it really depends on what's uh, what people are looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fantastic that you're available on the other end of an email. That's great. So for sure. So get ready for some inquiries. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate uh, yeah. it. Yeah, no, it's fun. I really enjoy it. You know, I enjoy networking yeah. and connecting people. For sure. Uh, and it, it's, as I often say on, on the show here, people are in the hospitality industry for a reason, and that's because they're hospitable. Yeah. And we like, we like connecting with other people. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't wait to like be able to like, you know, have people over and have a glass of wine and just kind of, you know, it's uh, cheese. Yes. But, uh, I know. Yeah, yeah. We are all looking forward to that. So fingers crossed it happens soon. Well, Evelina, listen, thank you so much for taking the time for meeting up virtually. Uh, really great discussion. And I'm really looking forward to the time, hopefully soon, that we can get together in person and raise a glass. But in the meantime, thanks for being remotely on Cheftimony. Well, thank you, Graham. Um, first of all, I mean, it has been, it's been great. And thank you for being a part of my morning walks on the Stanley Park and listen to your podcasts. Uh, it really, really makes it so much more fun uh, while running in the Stanley Park. And uh, thank you for the invitation. And uh, it's really a pleasure to connect with you. And it's always been. So thank you again. It's, uh, this was fantastic. Really had a good time. Thanks, Evelino, so much for meeting up virtually, as we must do these days. I really, really enjoyed that discussion. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and speak with me over the computer, and I can't wait until we can raise a glass in person. All right, moving now to an interview that I actually did do in person. I was downtown, which is a rare appearance for me these days, but in downtown Vancouver. And I met up, as you'll hear, at the Bell Cafe with my friend Mike Silva. We had a really good talk there. It was a sparsely populated cafe. People were observing social distancing. That was good to see. So I know Mike from my private practice days. We both worked at a law firm called White Law Twining. I started in 1999. Mike joined in 2003. He is still there. I've moved on. I'm doing other things in the law world now. And you'll hear Mike talk about when we first met and how we wound up very quickly in Las Vegas. And if you know Chef Demoni, you'll know that I love Vegas and the food scene there. But the focus of our discussion is, of course, on food and on Portuguese food. And Mike has got some great thoughts on not only food in Portugal, but Portuguese food in Vancouver and on the immigrant experience on having connections with parents and grandparents that go back to Portugal and what that was and is like living here in Vancouver in the present day. 
Mike's also got some recommendations on where you can find some great Portuguese food in Vancouver. So without further ado, let's head to the Bell Cafe. Here's my talk with my friend and former colleague, Mike Silva. Mike, great to see you. As always, this is uh, one of my very first in-person meetings in a long, long time. Here we are at Bell Cafe in downtown Vancouver, a pretty sparsely populated and sparsely tabled Bell Cafe. But uh, great to see you. Thanks for the coffee. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, great to see you too. Great to catch up and, and get out of isolation for a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's start at the beginning of when you and I met. And as I recall, that was 2003. I may have refreshed my memory by looking up when you were called to the bar because I think you came over to White Lodge Twining shortly after your call, and uh, we practiced together as associates there. You're still at the firm, now effectively leading it, and uh, I've moved on to other things. But tell me about coming over to White Lodge Twining as a young associate lawyer, and I'm looking particularly for your thoughts on uh, the first extracurricular activity we enjoyed as associates there. Yeah, just come over from a larger firm, and uh, I believe we met on my first day, as was the tradition at the firm at the time and still is. I had some initial orientation meetings and then our HR people were walking me around the firm to say hi to and introduce me to all the lawyers and paralegals and staff. And I met you standing at the reception desk. We said hi, introduced ourselves, and you promptly invited me to Las Vegas, which was billed as an associate's retreat, but was really just three guys plus me going to <laughs> Las going Vegas, to Vegas. Uh, on our own dime and had nothing to do with the firm or uh, being associates at the firm. But wasn't it fun? It was amazing. <laughs> it was a very good trip and a, and a great way to, to get to know you guys, to be honest. I mean, yeah. really quickly, within a month, I think, we were in Vegas and had a good time. And had a good time. Now, they say that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but our trips are so G-rated that I, I think we can, can share a few things. And, of course, I'm interested in the food aspects of it. The, the one thing I remember about every associate's retreat, and I'm putting that in air quotes because that's what we called them, was we started them by going to the, what was then the Barbary Coast, uh, later Bill's Gambling Hall, now the Cromwell, and we went to what is now Bound Cocktail Bar... Uh, but at the time was the Victorian room. Do you remember those late night, sort of midnight pseudo breakfasts? I'm not sure what they were. <laughs> yeah, I remember one of the members of the group had his set sort of routine, and that included landing late at night in Las Vegas, checking in, and then going immediately to this diner sort of cafe called the Victoria Room, which sort of took you into a time warp back to... Vegas's very beginnings, I believe, uh, and it was steak and eggs and not much else, and welcome to Vegas. Here we go. Here we go. But what a great way to start it, right? 24-hour breakfast. And the other food memory from that trip that stands out to me, and again, we repeated it, was the, I, I think it was and may still be, no, it was nine ninety nine. it's now eleven ninety nine. the Tony Roma 
steak and lobster special. Remember lining up for that? And that was my first experience, I think, with the, also with the famed Vegas 99-cent shrimp cocktail, which still makes me a little queasy to think about. Yeah, again, this same member of our group <laughs> had a Tony Roma's tradition. And, and uh, to be honest, I'd never been to Tony Roma's before that trip. I've seen them since. Uh, I, I was expecting this pretty impressive experience because I remember we had to go quite a distance, leave where we were in New Vegas and go to the old strip for Tony Roma's and, and then wait for two plus hours. I think I got so hungry I, I got an oxtail soup somewhere along the way while we were waiting for Tony Roma's. And, and then we sat down and we ordered our steak and lobster special and, and it was cheap. <laughs> And that's exactly true. It was. It was very economical. You know what? The, the oxtail soup, I had forgotten that. I wonder if it was at the Cal Hotel, the California. And the reason I mention that is friends of mine who have another podcast called the Spicy Eyes Podcast, they did a whole show on the Hawaiian food culture in Vegas. And it's really centered around the Cal. And they talk about oxtail soup uh, being on the menu, uh, particularly late at night. I wish it was, Graham. It was actually in like a sort of food fair, fast food section of whatever hotel Tony Roma's was in. They were feeding off people waiting for Tony Roma's. Waiting for Tony Roma's and willing to buy and eat just about anything. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't the strongest oxtail soup. I had. It was also cheap, though. Also a good value. Well, or at least cheap. Well, if we ever wind up in Vegas... At the same time again, let's, um, let's make a point of going to the Cal. It's supposed to be really good. But moving on from Vegas to, well, I guess, I guess Vancouver. And tell us about your, because this episode of the show is going to focus on Portuguese wine, Portuguese food. Uh, you're here both because you're satisfying the lawyer component of the show and because uh, you're one of very few people that I know personally who can speak knowledgeably to Portuguese food. But tell us First, the story, because I think this may encapsulate some immigrant food experiences, but you shared with me years and years ago a great story about your packed lunch and taking it to school and what ultimately happened when the teacher found out exactly what was in that lunch. Yeah. You know, my dad was an extremely, and still is, hardworking guy, had a couple jobs when I was young, worked at a sawmill, he built houses. He didn't do a lot of the cooking or, or meal prep. That was on my mom and my, my grandmother, who we lived, at, lived with at the time. And so when it did fall to my dad, he took a, I guess, a very Portuguese and, and, and somewhat simplistic approach to packing lunch for his, his young son. So grade eight, I was in the uh, cafeteria. I was eating my lunch uh, with a friend or two. I had loaf or a chunk of homemade Portuguese bread that my grandmother made. I had a pretty thick slab of prosciutto, again, that my grandfather smoked. And I had a knife to cut it. And I had a thermos that had sort of one quarter part wine and the rest water. And so my memory is really just, you know, the vice principal coming by and seeing this really inappropriately sized knife in my hand, I guess, and and the meal I was eating and being asked to go to the principal's office without much discussion 
and my father eventually coming down to the school to meet with the vice principal. And I really thought, to be honest, I thought at that point I was in trouble for the wine. Um, <laughs> but, but it was more the knife? It was the knife. Yeah, nobody really knew what was in the thermos, I guess. So I, I got away with the, with the wine, but, but uh, the knife was, was a problem. Did that lead in any way to your interest in law and litigation? <laughs> yeah, I've never thought about it, but uh, yeah, maybe, maybe that was the wrongfully accused. I needed a knife to cut the prosciutto. What else could I do, really? What else, what else could do? I do? I was using it responsibly. And you've been since uh, predominantly defense counsel, haven't you? I have been, yeah. Mike, can you comment on differences? Because I know you've spent a lot of time both in Portugal and in Canada. Maybe give us a sense of when and how much time you've spent in each country. And, and also what I'm really looking for, any thoughts you have on differences in food attitudes between, so we can say... Canada and Portugal, maybe more broadly North America and, and Europe? When I was younger, I had my great-grandparents were still alive and, and we had quite a bit of family in Portugal. So, you know, I've been, I've been back to Portugal frequently and, and, and at times would spend uh, long periods of time there over the summers and that sort of thing. But most of my life has, has been in Canada, but, but been in Canada growing up with this family who were really stuck not only in everything Portuguese, but everything Portuguese as it was in the 1950s and 60s. They were sort of in this time warp. Uh, All four of my grandparents were here. Two of them didn't speak much English uh, at all. The other two were more uh, fluent in English, but were still very grounded in, in their Portuguese community. So I grew up with you know, Portuguese food and Portuguese culture and, and that all of these memories from my family about what Portugal was like and what the differences be, were between living there and, and, and living here. That was my, even my, you know, my experience in Canada when it comes to food and the dinner table and that sort of stuff. It was, it was entirely influenced by my grandparents primarily, to be honest. It's interesting, these, the time capsule reference that you make, but my mum's side of my family is Icelandic and uh, from Manitoba going back, I don't actually know how many generations, which any uncles listening to this episode are going to call me on. But it's interesting because even linguistically, apparently the Icelandic spoken in Manitoba is closer to what it was in the 19th century in Iceland than what's spoken there now. Right? Oh, that's it, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because it, it just doesn't evolve in the same way. Yeah. Yeah, you know, linguistically a little different was my experience. My grandparents would pick up some Canadian words, some English words here and there, and what I would notice is that they'd sort of merge it into the Portuguese language. So my mom's parents in particular, they got to a point where really you needed to speak both Portuguese and English to understand what they were saying. <laughs> they, they combined the words, so garbage, for example, is lixu. My grandmother would always say garbishu. Uh, and and pure English speakers wouldn't really understand. And when she was speaking to her brother back in Portugal, he'd have to call her out on it uh, on occasion as well. But in terms of the time warp, what I remember is, uh, particularly my, my dad's mom, everything that she did every day was as she did it when she was living in Portugal. So, you know, you can't, for example, properly clean the floor unless you've got a bucket of soapy water and a rag and you're down on the floor scrubbing 
on your hands and knees. Mops aren't used, or the, the squeegee mops certainly are not used. Everything was as she did it back in the farm in a small island in Portugal in the, uh, in the 50s and 60s. What do you notice, if anything, in more recent travels between, uh, between BC and Portugal with respect to attitudes toward food? And I, I guess as some context for that question, it seemed, seems to me that until, I don't know when the year is, maybe the 80s here in Vancouver with John Bishop starting his restaurant and really connecting to uh, local ingredients, that has really grown in the but it's been within the last 30 to 40 years I think and my I've never been to Portugal but my sense is there's a much longer standing tradition of connection to fresh local very regionally regionally available ingredients is that right and have you noticed differences in that way yeah i mean my in in bc i'm very much you know a vancouver guy and and um my day-to-day is, you know, downtown Vancouver and working and, you know, quick lunches and that sort of thing. I, I know that, I mean, in Portugal, even in the big cities, your meals are more of a focus and, and there's a lot more time put into uh, enjoying the meal and taking a proper lunch and, and maybe not finishing your work day. But, you know, to be fair, my... My Portuguese experience is different because I haven't spent a lot of time in the big cities and I'm certainly not not working when I'm there. I'm in the small towns where my family's from. And for the most part, there are small fishing villages or small sort of rural towns and everything is, is you know, uh, fresh local ingredients. You're eating, I mean, for me, it's primarily seafood and it's what's come out of the ocean that day really simple sauces simple ingredients but all local all fresh really beautiful stuff and you are now the father of three children what uh, what goes on for meal prep in your household these days and uh, are there some influences from any of your grandparents uh, flowing down into into how you're cooking at home these days you know, my cooking is all my grandparents. I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure I know how to make much of anything that isn't Portuguese. So, yeah, I mean, my kids are, they're experiencing it all. I mean, my, my grandfather, my mom's parents are both still alive. They're 95 and 93, and they still keep a garden and, and grow, you know, any sort of produce that I need, really, whether it's herbs or tomatoes or real sort of Portuguese ingredients like uh, there's a special type of kale we use a lot of that you can't buy here in Canada but um, my grandf- but you can grow it <laughs> my grandfather supplies uh, the family so yeah I mean everything from the use of fresh ingredients and my grandfather's focus on growing everything himself and my grandmother's focus on making bread and making baking constantly to the you know, the, the meals that I know how to make, they're all Portuguese-influenced. Okay, Mike, last question before we wrap it up here. Apart from uh, coming to your house, which I may invite myself over to do to experience some Portuguese food, where in Vancouver is a good place to go? Are there good places to go to experience Portuguese food here? Oh, it's a, you know, there, there used to be. There was a, a family that would open up a Portuguese restaurant and run it for 
years, sell it and, and go on vacation and come back and, and uh, open a new restaurant. Uh, and their, their latest restaurant was in one of their first restaurants. People that know Portuguese food in, in Vancouver, uh, one of their first restaurants was called April in Portugal. And that, that goes years and years back. Uh, their last one was called Sagres, and it was in Maple Ridge. But they've, they've shut it down, and, and I think they're at an age now where they've retired. So the only place that I know is on Commercial Drive, and it's called PCOV, or the Portuguese Club of Vancouver. Great place to go and watch soccer, great place to go and uh, have a drink and have a meal. Their specials are usually out of this world. So if you are going there, right to the special board, I think, and, and, and you get a lot of fresh local seafood there and prepared in a real traditional Portuguese way. Beautiful. Well, listen, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time. It's great to catch up, and I'm, I'm really glad that you've chosen to be on Cheftimony. Thanks for being here. Great. Thank you. Good to see you, buddy. Mike, it was really great to catch up. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for fulfilling the lawyer component of the show this week. I really appreciated appreciated your thoughts on food and culture and, of course, Las Vegas. Hope we can get back there one day. And with that, we are at the end of another episode of Cheftimony. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with a food-loving friend. Let them know about the podcast and encourage them to subscribe on their favorite podcast app. If you'd like, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a star rating and or a written review for Cheftimony wherever you're listening to it. Doing either or both of those things really does help other people find the show. Would appreciate that very much. As always, I love to hear from you. Listeners to the show are a constant source of topic ideas and great guest suggestions. So if you know a chef or a lawyer, or perhaps you are a chef or a lawyer or both, and think you could be a good fit for the show, please just get in touch. You can reach me on social media. Instagram is where I'm most often found, but also Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or just send me an email to graham at cheftimony.com. All right, that really is going to do it for today. Thanks again for joining me. I'll see you next Friday, right here on Chef Tomorrow.